When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So someone murdered the wife, the husband or the brother. I don't see, I can't, there's no evidence to show that it was the husband who killed his wife. Could he have done it? Of course he could. Everything has possibility, doesn't it, in murder. Do I think with all the other material and the background of the case and the way they lived their lives and who they were, I think it's extremely unlikely. So where Jackie saw a locked door mystery, Hamish sees a locked door. To get the door lock broken, he's had to kill Tribe, lock himself into the toilets, climb out the window. I mean, it's becoming a bit fanciful by now. You have to deal with what's more likely and probable as opposed to what's unlikely and improbable. Is it impossible that he did all these things? No. Is it likely, though? It's pretty unlikely. After our call with Hamish, my head was kind of spinning. I thought I was just going to Hamish as a formality. After talking to Jackie, the gaps in the case seemed glaring, and I was so focused on how I was going to tell Kate's family that Fader might be a murderer that I just assumed Hamish would have a similar read. And now we had a very different problem, with two extremely qualified detectives giving us completely opposite verdicts. We had to figure out which one of them was wrong. So... Okay, my name is Dr. Alfred Titus Jr. I'm a criminal behavioural analyst, formerly of New Scotland Yard. We've got a bigger sample size. I'm a professor and criminologist. I was also a police officer and detective for 16 years. Retired NYPD. I'm just going from my 27 years of working cases. We assembled a kind of informal panel of six murder detectives with decades of experience. And what was your solve rate? The last three or four years, we were at 100%. We had 100% solve rate. It was about 95%. I'm not trying to brag, but it's pretty damn good. Actually, I did some maths. Between them, the panel has a collective 174 years of experience. I can sit here and tell you I solved all of my cases, but one, and I'm going to sit here and tell you I had two divorces. We sent them the file and asked them for their assessment. And they all had the same answer. What would you say is your one-sentence headline after having reviewed the case file? Dr. Dancy did it. Dr. John Dancy has a clear motive. For me, there seems to be only one person who does gain in this scenario. I would say he was absolutely involved. And that's Dr. Dancy. Every single one came back with Fader as their main suspect. Nobody knows for sure but John. I believe it was homicide by Dr. Dancy. 
they noticed things we didn't see in Fader's statement. First of all, I, I went into it with no preconceived notion of whether it was a murder-suicide or a, a double murder. But when I read his statement, I knew it was baloney. That's when I knew he did it. This is Cloyd Steiger. He was a homicide detective at the Seattle Police Department. One part of Fader's statement did it for him. Which part of it? Okay, here it is. Dr. Dancy, here's the shots. Tribe shoots at him. He says he went to the lavatory and tried to open it. He called on Tribe to come out and give him the gun, but he replied, stand away from the panels or I'll shoot you like a dog. So he did all that first. Then he went into the room. She's dead there. He found her on the bed, shot through the eyes, blood spurting from one of them. That's his exact words. There's a, there's a legal term for phrases like that. What is it? This is bullshit. <laughs> They're bull- this is all bullshit. Because, first of all, like a shot to the head, a brain, you're dead almost instantly. It'll spurt for about three seconds or two seconds. So when he says blood was spurting out of a right eye, bullshit. He did not see that. <laughs> That's an absolute lie. Oh, he, oh let, me, let me change that. He may have seen it, but if he did, he was standing right next to her when he fired the shot, when the shot was fired. That's the only way he could have seen that. No other way. Zero chance. That is a physiological fact. The panel pointed out problems that seem obvious now. To be looking at a gun that was supposedly on the floor next to Maurice, you have a gun and you have a razor, and you're going to kill yourself. Who the hell would pick up the razor and cut their throat? Like, they all doubted that Morris would have used a razor blade to end his life when he had a revolver with three rounds left in it. So there are firm stats on preferred method of suicide by age, by gender, Slitting one's throat is less than one half of 1% of all suicides. You don't see people that cut their own throats. Not one time have I seen it. Not one time. The truth is, this point stands whether Morris killed himself or Fader killed him. Why would Fader choose this incredibly difficult way of killing Morris if he had a gun right there? Why would he slit his throat? The detectives had thoughts about that too. He might have killed tribe first because his wife is asleep and you could do that quietly whereas if he shot her first tribe would come running what what happened what happened you know there's something curious about this scenario though if fader had attempted to kill morris morris would have fought back and you'd expect to see defensive wounds bruises nicks on the arms or body but there's nothing of the sort only the wounds on his neck that's the other thing i want to i want to know what the toxicology was what was what was tribe's blood alcohol level right Unless, of course, the detectives pointed out, Morris was knocked out. In fact, several of the detectives wanted to know whether Morris had been incapacitated before he died. There's no toxicology report. Even though the technology existed at the time, the pathologists didn't do a toxicology report on Morris. Maybe because they didn't suspect anything. So we don't know if Dancy, you know, shot him up with morphine or any other kind of drug to incapacitate him, you know, and him being a doctor... He's got the wherewithal to do a lot more than a regular Joe could do. You know, he's got drugs, he's got medical knowledge. Remember Fader mentions in his statement that he was giving injections to Morris to treat his failing vision? He gave them to him every Monday, the same day the murder happened. This all seems pretty suspicious. But we hadn't yet talked about the one piece of evidence that Hamish thought overruled all the others. I want to ask you about the the hesitation wounds because that was kind of a 
key piece of evidence for the pathologist. He described them as hesitation wounds. Were they hesitation rooms or were they attempts to cut his throat? Because when I first heard this, uh, to be honest, when I read the first things, I just scanned through it, and then I saw hesitation wounds. Oh, hesitation wounds. Yeah, it was probably self-inflicted. Then I went back and read the whole thing in depth and looked. That doesn't really sound like hesitation wounds to me. Cloyd disagrees with the pathologist at the time, and he just thinks the wounds are too deep to be hesitation wounds. Because hesitation wounds generally are very, like a scratch. How do you know that? I know how hesitation wounds are because I've seen them several times. But in the skin, because it's very, you don't hesitation. Once you start cutting into the skin, it's not really a hesitation wound anymore because that hurts a lot. The so-called hesitation wounds didn't move the needle for Cloyd, and none of the other detectives even brought them up. So if we got this panel together to get clarity, I guess we got something close to that. Here were six new detectives wholeheartedly agreeing with Jackie, and Hamish way out on a limb on his own. For those of you keeping track at home, that's eight detectives we've spoken to, seven of whom point to Fader as their main suspect. But despite that, I didn't feel a lot of clarity. Hamish's point about the hesitation wounds was nagging at me. I wasn't so sure it could just be rejected so quickly. And the pathologist, who insisted hesitation wounds would be virtually impossible to fake, he said one thing in particular that stuck with me. You don't see that kind of planning and delicacy trying to fake hesitation marks. I don't even know who would think of that. That's awfully diabolical. Actually, this is one of the only things that all the detectives agree on. For Fader to have killed Naomi and Morris and staged the crime scene, he would have to be sort of the perfect criminal. If that's the case, we're talking about, I mean, a clinical psychopath. He played this through like a cinematographer. He probably thought about it every day and thought he thought of the perfect crime. And Fader? What are the chances he's secretly a criminal mastermind? What kind of person was Dr. John Dancy? Well, that is a very good question, and it's the question that I spend almost all my waking hours thinking about. Mm. So Dr. John Dancy is my wife's great-grandfather. He's a doctor. During the First World War, he becomes a spy. Oh. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Did I mention he was a spy? Why'd you make that noise? (laughs) Because he knows stuff. (laughs) He's trained in this type of stuff. What what type of stuff? Like getting away with murder. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and my fascinating interview with the amazing Jackie Morton. Now, in the clip at the top of the episode, you heard Hamish Campbell speaking. Now, he ran the murder teams at one point at New Scotland Yard, and I worked with him before that in the Racial and Violent Crime Task Force when I was profiling domestic violence and sexual violence. Interestingly, he was also the SIO, the senior investigating officer in the horrific murder of TV presenter Jill Dando. 
Some of you may recall that murder, but I recommend you look the case up to understand what happened. So going back to Dr Naomi Dancy and Ghost Story, you heard from Hamish and you also heard from other experts give their two cents, including myself, although we were really reduced to sound bites. But in amongst the experts, worthy of note is the point about how rare suicides are by someone cutting their own throat. And I'm going to add to that that if there were a firearm available, why would they not use that? It just makes no sense. And there was the other thought that if someone, i.e. Dr. John Dancy, had cut Morris's throat and thought about and included the hesitation marks, that that would make someone awfully diabolical, a psychopath, someone who had thought through the nuanced detail. And yes, that's exactly the point, particularly when we get into this part of the interview. And a reminder, Jackie also believed that Tristan said that Dr John Dancy had been a police surgeon. And of course, there's the spy aspect to it and the magician and the songwriter. Well, we're going to get into all of that in the next couple of episodes. So there's a lot to think about. Here's your trigger warning and spoiler alert. As you can tell, we get into the nuanced details of the case. So where we left off in part one, we were talking about Dr. John Dancy's story being believed because he was a doctor and that his narrative went unchallenged Okay, without further ado, let's dive back into this illuminating interview with Jackie Morton. Why was he allowed to just give his narrative and it not to be corroborated or fact-checked with anybody or challenged, even pushing to test him? How could that happen? And then in the Ghost Story podcast... What became clear to me, because I didn't have any knowledge about Dr. John Dancy, about the legacy, the family, the history, it was just literally the case file. And I think you were the same, weren't you? No, I didn't know anything. No connections with the Dancy family whatsoever. Just the files you had. So then on, upon hearing that he had written this 3,000-page memoir about himself... And yet most of it was not substantiated, i.e. he didn't go to Cambridge. There were certain questions that Tristan had and he challenged that whole narrative that was written at his own hand and it turned out to be mostly made up. I mean, just things that he had... He said he was a spy and there was no record of him, but it's interesting how the family can rationalise that and absolutely say, well, of course there wouldn't be a record of him being a spy because he was a spy, so therefore there would be no record. And there'd be no record of him being at Oxford University. With the world, the greatest respect to the Dancy family, one can rationalise that in order to believe the truth that you want to believe. And we have no connection to the Dancy family. We've just been given this file to look at. So it would be so questions are so obvious have to be asked um, to find the truth of what's happened to Dr Naomi Dancy. Yes, and that was, for me, it was a search for truth. It was a search for answers within that case file and not knowing all the other information that sat around the case and having no investment in one way or the other, it was just really I shared within a, an hour and a bit my analysis with Tristan and with, with the team. And also say this, we should say this as well, because I know it did mention it on the podcast as well. But like you said, it took an awful amount of time to read this and to analyze it. And we did that in our own time and for free. 
So that's really important thing, you know, to say as well, that we had invested a huge amount of time in this case as it was an interesting story. So, and I was very pleased to do it. So I'm not saying anything other than that. But it wasn't like a five-minute job. I think they came to my house two or three times and they weren't five-minute interviews. We have to state that, that we all gave our time up for nothing. Yes, really important. It was independent. We wanted to help, wanted to shed light. And for me, it felt important to correct the narrative for Dr. Naomi Dancy and the female line in the family, Right. So then I became even more perturbed when I heard that she had been erased in Dr. John Dancy's 3000 page memoir about himself, that he had just erased her. He had written how he had met her, but nothing else. That for me is a red flag. Why would you do that? Then finding out about a second partner and a whirlwind relationship. She was 17 years younger. I wasn't told that when we were recording in terms of my analysis, but that's another very important piece of information I would have wanted to have been privy to when doing my analysis, but I didn't know that. But the fact that Mary Garston, there was another story told about her dying in childbirth. The the family narrative was very different from what had actually happened. And that was concerning to me. And to hear Mark, sort of head of the family who, you know, memorialized Dr. John Dancy so much, he even took on the name Fader himself. And Fader meaning father, he gave himself this sort of title where Mark did the same in the family. And there's an investment in protecting that legacy. And we heard that from Mark straight away on the podcast. There's sort of a lead in with him basically saying, uh, and I want to quote him, he said, if you come out with a piece that says that he's, he's a murderer, then I'll be sorry that I said we'd contribute to this. And so I thought, wow, that there, here's a family who are very heavily invested in protecting and preserving this narrative. Why aren't they interested in getting to the truth? And why aren't they interested in Dr. Naomi Dancy and the females, Mary Garston, who have been totally wiped out the narrative? So as I was listening, I had a lot of concerns. The production value of the podcast, Ghost Story, was a very high level of production. I mean, in terms of the immersive experience and listening and, you know, it's quite captivating in the way that they've pieced it all together. They've done a very good job, yes. Yes, but to speak to you and Hamish and then speak to another six experts and to reduce, I'm sure you said a lot more, like you said, three interviews, and I'm sure you said a lot more, but to reduce it to... What happened, they came back and said that they'd seen another detective uh, who they did name to me, who said the opposite to that, who had said that the investigation by the police in 1937 and the conclusion that they came to murder-suicide was the correct one. And at that point, they had two ex-detectives from London saying opposing things, and therefore that they would then go and speak to other experts. And that left kind of, I own this, Laura, so, you know, going to self-doubt again, oh, Complete as a woman, I went into my <laughs> self doubt. I hear you. Self doubt. And I went back to the file and checked it again. And I just was completely happy with my conclusion that I felt that it wasn't murder suicide. 
Yes, and I think that was an interesting setup of you framing it and some of the things that you said, and I want to talk about them, were very compelling. Compelling to me because I had already questioned those very points, but I'd also focused on some other things. And so we can bounce off of what those things were. And then hearing Hamish, who I worked with at New Scotland Yard, say categorically they made the right decision and saying it very quickly based off the post-mortem. And so what it also tells us is that different experts place emphasis on different things. And that's why I felt that being one of the experts, which I didn't know, I was one of a number in the process. But in terms of what I said, I think it's quite important that people hear the process of how various experts with different backgrounds arrive at the conclusions or or their opinions. And that, for me, I felt with true crime, that's what people want to hear. Well, how do you get there? And I felt with the six of us that were used, we were sound bites. And I felt that that was very unfair. And I'm just airing that because when you spend your time helping people and you want to do the right thing and you want to do a good job, it's to hear you reduced to like three seconds and not to return. You see, when I posted on social media saying everyone should listen to Ghost Story, I thought because you were involved and various other people were involved that this was going to be a very good production. And I felt that we would all be returned to as to how we arrived at our decisions. And, and we never were. And so for me, the ending, and spoiler alert to my listeners, it ends with a seance and a psychic and a ghost and a conclusion that takes you in one direction only. And it felt quite insulting and quite offensive, actually, to throw it to a seance and a psychic and a ghost to have the final word in the case. Yeah, I want to mention about that ghost because uh, the psychic then says in an earlier episode when he contacts Morris that somebody did it to him. If you remember, he says somebody did it to him about cutting the throat then that translates later on. That completely changes in the last episode to the seance, where, I won't spoil it for the listeners, but it's a completely opposite thing that he said in a previous episode, if that makes sense. So you can hardly say somebody did it to him, and then he makes contact with Dr. Naomi Dancy, who then tells us what happened. (laughs) What happened? And you kind of think, there are seven detectives and experts saying, without doubt, that they queried the murder-suicide conclusion. And here we have a psychic in the last episode, and that makes it okay then. Yes. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I was so insulted by that. I can't tell you. And also the comments by Hamish why experts might want to come to that conclusion. And um, I just think I just need to get this off my chest, really, if you don't mind. 
So No, you go ahead, Jackie. Christian asks him why we might think, come to that conclusion. And Hamish says, some detectives want to find a more fantastical exaggeration of the case than, yes, I do think that. Yes, I do think that's the conclusion that they come to. He says, you see that in the vacuum of hard facts, you place incorrect thoughts or ideas and build on them. You've created something out of nothing. And then it was said, I think Tristan said this, unfortunately, straightforward, perverse desire to want murders to be more exciting than they are. And then he says to Tristan, you are looking for a mystery when there is no mystery. You're looking for shadows and finding shapes. Now, I found that really kind of breathtaking that why would what experts like me and you and the other detectives who were all hardened and successful, extremely successful murder detectives, huge experience. Um, someone to find a more fantastical exaggeration of the case. If they do, then yes, I do. He said, I don't understand why these detectives would come to that conclusion other than finding a more fantastical exaggeration of the case. Well, it's a a nonsense. It's a nonsense. Why would we want to do that? And so it seems like a psychic and Hamish won. You know what I mean? I just... I do. I just felt completely kind of punched in the stomach, if I'm honest. I hear you, Jackie. And it's an important moment in the podcast. So I want everyone to hear exactly what Hamish said. This is from episode five of Ghost Story, when Tristan recontacts Hamish. Take a listen to this. There was only one detective who thought Fayther definitely didn't do it. All the others had pointed to Fayther as their lead suspect. So I decided to reach out to the one holdout on our panel, Hamish Campbell, the one who thought the hesitation wounds were incontrovertible evidence. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's much better, Hamish. I wanted to know how he would explain why all the other detectives suspected Fayther. A good question, but I'm... To be honest, I don't know why they think the way they think. But do you think maybe some want to sort of find a a more fantastical or exaggerated position of the case? Then yes, I do. That instinct towards the more dramatic conclusion, the better story. Hamish says he's seen it a lot in his career. You see that in so many cases where people want to see another explanation. and, And in the vacuum of information and the absence of of hard fact, you place incorrect thoughts and ideas and you then build on them. You just build up a whole case, but in fact, you've created something out of nothing. He listed half a dozen murder cases where the media, the family, even other officers offered up theories that were darker, more conspiratorial than the one right in front of them. They'd latch onto it, start seeing signs of it everywhere only to have the real outcome be totally mundane. You know, unfortunately, some cases are relatively straightforward. You know, they're not all Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers investigations. They're just sad, tragic, small events of of time and life. What Hamish is identifying is a kind of perverse desire that I think many of us have to want murders to be more exciting than they are, more true crimey. I sense you're, you're looking for a mystery. Perhaps the mystery is there is no mystery. 
Okay, sure. But but what's what's actually driving that? Why do people come up with these theories that certain cases might be more exciting than they actually are? Oh, I, Tristan, I don't know. I, well, you, you have to, um, you have to, you could ask yourself that question. What do you mean? Well, because what, what's driving you in this case? I, I sense a real belief from you, Tristan, that you want it to be Dr. Dancy killed his wife and killed his brother-in-law. I think you're looking in the shadows and finding shapes. Hamish believed we wanted to find the case more interesting, but that's simply not true. We were told nothing about the family or any other details. We learned it along with everybody else when Ghost Story aired. I felt that when Hamish first commented, he didn't really pause for thought of having any doubt or any questions about what really transpired. And that, to me, was a problem. Now, he may have said other things, and the same with us. When we we were spoken with, we said a lot of things. But I think what the podcast left us open to is that question, because people didn't hear our process. They didn't hear how we arrived at the conclusion or opinion that we did. And therefore, it's open for Hamish to say, oh, people arrive at this fantastical, it has to be more interesting, but most murders are not that interesting. They are just things that happen in every day. Well, I disagree with that because there's a lot of psychology and behaviour that you assess and it's not looking for things that don't exist. These things did exist. It's a fact that Dr John Dancy's narrative was never questioned It's a fact that he set Morris up in his statement saying he's an alcoholic, he's mentally unstable, he made threats to shoot my wife in the eyes, her beautiful eyes. It's a fact that he talked about the insurance documents being left there and he suspected Morris had seen them and that the the insurance had been updated. It's a fact that the alcohol and drug question mark was there about Morris and the alcohol and the drugs being found on the bed and the pornographic pictures and the detective novel. Those things are all facts. It's a fact that he washed Morris's hands. Why would you do that? You see, when you raise that as a question, I already had that. Why would he wash his hands? Why would he take his pulse when it's obvious through his injuries that he was bleeding out and most likely dead pretty quickly from bleeding out? Why would he wash his hands? Why would he say he opened the door and the razor was in his hand and falling to the ground? And But when they find Morris, the razor is in his hand and that's the one thing they questioned him on. And then he said he put it there. Well, why again would you interfere? These things are facts. To then call up Dorothy Sayers, a crime writer who was very well known at the time, who was so concerned by what she heard from him, she jotted down seven pages of notes because she was that alarmed by the things that he said just weeks after his wife was murdered. And he told her that he was philosophical about it, about your wife being brutally killed just within weeks. And he said, and I'm going to quote him, it was a regular story book crime. He was a fellow who was always reading books, detective stories, that kind of thing. He used a towel to hold the revolver so as not to show fingerprints. 
And Dorothy said, I'm afraid we tell people too much in our books. And he laughed, John Dancy, and he said, I'm afraid. So it was obviously a murder taken out of a book. That, to me, is a big red flag, him talking about the murder being taken out of a book and him talking to a crime writer, a crime writer who he obviously knows her work, knows her books, says that his daughter reads her books. But it's clear that he has a lot of knowledge about true crime, even though he rubbished Morris saying that he read these trashy books about true crime. But he said even more so, um, and I know that you will have comment about this, he said to her, in their usual way, they're so keen on the wood that they can't see any of the trees. And he's talking about the police. And he says, to show that I hadn't done it myself, they had to be sure I hadn't cut his throat myself and got out through the lavatory window and then broken the door afterwards. That... <laughs> And I remember hearing you on the podcast saying he's telling her how he did it, the locked room mystery, and I agree with you. He's telling Dorothy Elsea how he did it to try and test her in terms of uh, what she believed as a crime writer. And obviously, as you said, Laura, she becomes so concerned that she writes to the police and um, wants to go in and speak to them. But they actually say, oh, there, there, Dorothy says, don't you worry about it. And that, again, is hugely condescending. And it's how it's almost a mirror of Dancy trying to kind of fit in the facts in one way and the police trying to square up the facts themselves in order for them to suit their own narrative of murder-suicide. And ignoring the fact that even a gentleman called in on the commander crime and took a witness that was with Dancy when he told him the day before the murders, he had bought um, indecent photographs, that Dancy bought six indecent photographs in order for Morris, excuse me to say this, to masturbate himself. This was the day before the murder. And four of those photographs were found in Morris Tribe's suitcase. He also said that to Dorothy L. Sayers, that that uh, tribe persuaded, although he couldn't shave himself, he persuaded Dancy to buy the razor. Do you remember that bit? Yes. He persuaded Dancy to buy the cutthroat razor. Dancy also says that Morris Tribe persuaded Dr. Dancy to change the bathroom window because he was concerned that other people could see in. Now, Morris Tribe only frequented the house, you know, rarely, so to speak. He had been there on a weekly basis of late. But would you believe that Morris Tribe would then say to Dancy, would you mind changing that bathroom window, please? Because I think the neighbours can see in. No, it's just fanciful. It's fanciful. So he's setting, again, setting all these things in. But this man was concerned when he went to see Commander Crime to talk about him buying these photographs. And of course, the cocaine that was found in the house as well in Queen's Road. And it was almost like that he had thought and planned this for so long, which he accused tribes of doing. He, he accused Maurice Tribe of planning this. He had planned this for so long. When I think the truth is that Dancy had planned it for so long and had put everything in place and was asking really 
Dorothy L. Sayers, whether she could kind of read anything into that that was suspicious. And he said to her, do the police tell you anything? Do you talk to the police? That was very revealing in itself. Yes. And I think that conversation, there was so much leakage. Dorothy Sayers, if we take her, why would she fabricate these things? She has no motive to fabricate or to make this up. She was that concerned that she she took these notes. And he said to her, I'll tell you all the details you won't get from the police. Who says that after your wife has just been killed to bring in a crime writer who you've previously described those crime writers as trash? But he also said in that conversation, it's his idea was to make it look as though I had cut his throat and shot myself. It was very carefully planned a long time before. And he said that numerous times. It was very carefully planned. I think this is leakage, that it's truth. It was carefully planned and it's almost too well planned. And that's why I felt this was staging, staging in the statement, the four page statement, but staging of the scene, which would have taken some time too. the one hour. There's a time gap from when Dr. Naomi Dancy was murdered and when Morris died to him then calling the police. But before he called the police, he did wake up the housekeeper. Now, according to his account, Morris had locked himself in the toilet, having threatened to kill him, but he had dodged the bullet by turning off the light and falling to the floor and pretending that he had been hit. So technically, Morris is still a risk at this point. But what he does is talk to him through the door, tells him to kill himself, and then he goes and wakes the housekeeper which seems a very odd thing to do, of why wait the housekeeper and put her in a position of risk? Then he called the police, but there is a time gap of an hour. So what is he doing within that hour? And it's a very long time to delay calling for help or even shouting for help. No one hearing him screaming or shouting for help. And he didn't call for help when his wife is dying in bed. So his account didn't make sense of him seeing the blood coming out of her out of her eyes. Well, how would he see that? Because he talked about going to tribe first and tribe shouting, stand by the door, I'll, you know, I'll shoot you like a dog type of thing. And so he's conversing with tribe, having heard the shots. So anybody would go rushing straight into the bedroom to see the wife, but he deals with tribe first in that conversation. And then he goes to see his wife. And then one of the experts that was spoken to said that to see blood spurting out of your eyes was a nonsense, absolute nonsense. It might do it for about a second or two after somebody shoots them in the eye. But after that sustained period of time, when he goes into the bedroom, there would no, be no blood spurting from the eye. Do you remember that expert saying that? Yes. These are all points that he should have been challenged on, but he wasn't. And, you know, why would there be no challenge? Well, we've already talked about that, but it just seemed to be a very open and shut case from the point of view of the police, despite two letters coming in, that there was a rush to make a quick judgment because it seemed so obvious. The scene all seemed so obvious. And then you've got the follow-up statement by Dr. John Dancy. But what we know about his history is that he's not truthful and he cannot be seen as credible you bring the second part in, which is about the second wife, that he introduced very quickly to the children. Within weeks again, two he's weeks. introduced two, two weeks. weeks. Two weeks of her death, he introduces her to the children as Mousy. 
So there's a nickname, which means that they know each other. Familiar, yeah. Yes, known each other for longer. And that was, I'm listening to the Ghost Story podcast and I'm hearing this all for the first time and I'm like, oh my goodness. And then not just that they get married, but she's pregnant and she dies suddenly and unexpectedly in the house at night when only Dr. John Dancy is there. So now you have two women who die suddenly and unexpectedly and only Dr. John Dancy is there and he has a friend come in who's a doctor who signs the death certificate. Well, that was a big, it's a huge case that wasn't really even probed of, did the baby die as well? Yeah. Also what happens is Christian says that his second wife's father uh, was very wealthy and he was brought to live at the house in Queen's Road and he died. So the daughter would, Dancy's second wife, would inherit that money uh, from her dad. And then she dies by slipping in the hallway, doesn't she? And he says, apparently Dancy says, I told her to wake me up every time she wanted to go to the toilet, but on this occasion she didn't wake me up and she falls and dies. Highly, highly suspicious. There is no post-mortem because it is a friend of Dancy that comes and pronounces her dead, a fellow medical practitioner. He pronounces her dead. So that's all kind of squared up. So now he's got Probably got the money from the insurance for the death of his wife, which was five thousand pounds, which in 1937 would be in today's money would be an awful amount of money. Then he got the money, or his wife did. The second wife, Mary, got the. It was Mary, his second wife, wasn't it? Yes, Mary Garston. Mary Garston uh, got the money from her dad. So whether you know, it seems like a kind of a financial motive. In all of the in those two kind of cases, and then again projecting it and putting it onto Morris Tribe about the insurance policy, I never ever kind of understood that because Morris Tribe, in the first insurance policy, only paid two instalments, and Dancy paid the remaining of them. So I don't know how commission is paid. I don't quite understand it. But that whole setup about the insurance, leaving the allegedly the insurance papers on the desk, hearing the conversation allegedly between Tribe and his sister saying he won't be around much and the threats to kill his, his sister. Morris's Tribe's own wife says he was very, very close and loved his sister very much. So even his own wife said that he was very close to his sister. And really felt for her. So all of these things that who Morris Tribe was, and there's a wonderful obituary in, in the Daily Telegraph where a man who is the HM Commissioner for Prisons, a Majesty's Commissioner for Prisons, talks about this kind, gentle man, a very courageous man, etc. But obviously he does speak about the drink and uh, believe has to believe the conclusion that Morris Tribe killed his sister. You can feel the sadness in it because it was obvious that it wasn't the man that he knew. And he'd been at the university with him, he'd gone to Oxford with him. He was a kind, gentleman, Morris Tribe. And he could be irritable, apparently, according to his wife, in drink. Well, that doesn't make you a violent monster, does it? No. But what Dancy talks about, and the sister talks about, his many threats to commit suicide because he'd obviously had enough. He's eyesight was failing, you know, he wasn't a well man. 
but this, it was to take his own life, not to take anybody else's life. And that threat to take somebody else's life was only proffered by Dancy, nobody else. Yes. And that's why in both cases with Dr. Naomi Dancy and Mary Garston, there's only one person's narrative to tell that story. And that's who has been believed. But I felt with Mary Garston, what the family had been told was that she died in childbirth. But there was a question for me, was was the baby born or not? Or did the baby die? But both women have just been erased out of the family history. And why would you do that? Why would Dr. John Dancy do that? Well, I know normally that happens to create distance when you've done something that you don't want remembered or attached to you. But he would have no reason just to erase them completely from the history. And the insurance in both cases, it's he who gains. He who gains in both cases. It wasn't Morris, because I agree with you. What would he benefit from financially? He apparently got a finder's fee, but it wouldn't be that much. It wouldn't surely wouldn't be something you could rely on in terms of any form of full income to support you. It must have been just a, a small amount of money. So the insurance motive never made sense to me, and it all seemed very convenient to say these things. You remember that bit in Dance's statement when he said that he was asked by Morris Tribe to stop at a telephone box because he wanted to speak to a colleague from his work and that Morris was managing director of that company's um, Spark and something, and he was an engineer. In Dance's statement when he took him from his tribe's mother's house or mother-in-law's house. He asked me to stop in the car on page three as it was Mr. Lake's business. Mr. Lake is the director of Sparks and Mead Engineers, Peckham, where Morris was the managing director. So I'm not too sure because other statements from his wife say, you know, that he was could hardly kind of manage financially. So that kind of just stuck out. And was there any statement from, well, there isn't any. You know, as an investigator, you would go to Sparks and Mead, wouldn't you? And you'd say, what was Morris's job? You know, what was he like? What kind of character? Did you, were you aware of any drinking problem or whatever? Yes. And just below that, it said, because he'd had an accident, it'd been knocked over. He said, I put Morris into his room. This is the, the day of preceding the murder. I put Morris into his room on the first floor and put him into two armchairs as his legs were bad. So he can't see, his legs are bad. He goes into a room. We don't know whether the light was on or not. Kills his sister through with a gun through the eyes and stuff. And then also shoots at John Dancy again standing up, uh, and it misses him. It just, there's just so many questions, Laura, so many questions. And it's like, what were you doing, the police, the Metropolitan Police? What were you doing? Well, in this case, what you weren't doing. Yes, no follow-ups. And as we know, that's really important. But they bought hook, line and sinker what he was selling. Like I said, the stagedness of it, it's almost perfect in terms of every ingredient that you would want to see to point to motive. So we've got the insurance motive that wasn't questioned. But what I said about the crime scene, her being shot in each eye, normally, you know, anything on the face is very personal in terms of behaviour, the behavioural analysis. 
and it would point to someone who's had a relationship with her. It would point to obliteration. But what did she use most in her work was her eyes. And for me, it would point to revenge motive. As a crime scene, it looks very clear. And Morris has been set up to have this revenge. It's Dr. Dancy who said he was jealous of his sister's eyes, her beautiful eyes. The threats were to her eyes. This is so unique and so unusual that it just stands out. And in fact, one of the officers from the CID said... This dastardly crime is a dastardly crime that, in my opinion, could only have been committed by a lunatic. And that's what he concludes. It could only have been committed by a lunatic. And that lunatic was set up to be Morris Tribe. So it points in that direction, but everything is just too perfectly pointing in one direction only that that was the red flag, the biggest red flag for me, that why I would have more questions to ask. It's like somebody has read this. I mean, you you talked about the locked door mystery, and I found that fascinating that you mentioned about the locked door and how would he get out. But yet we hear him, according to Dorothy Sayers, he explains through the window. And then this other detail about the window that you mentioned, the window was altered. There's an answer for everything threaded in you know, and if you pull that thread, it's just the perfect picture of a jumper that could ever be put together, which means that it's somebody who's thought about this long and hard in incredible detail. Was that person Morris Tribe? From everything that we're hearing, no, because he was taking alcohol, he was mentally unstable. He couldn't have put all of this together so perfectly. But Dr. John Dancy is involved with every aspect of it, from buying the razor, the nude photos, the pornography, the doing the injections, the book, literally every aspect there's an answer for. So the red flags for me, just too many of them to ignore. And he also speaks to Dorothy Say, doesn't he, about the towel, using the towel in order to shoot his sister so it would hide the fingerprints. Well, that's that's madness. You know, why would Tribe, if it was murder-suicide, want to hide his own fingerprints? But the fingerprints, when he used, if it was a towel used for the gun, see, the police don't even... I don't know if fingerprints were... Yeah, they would have been around in 1937. So there's no firearms report about... Because he tells Dorothy Sayers that the curtains were drawn or, or something. He said, well, why would the bullet not go through the curtains? But the police don't mention that at all. They don't mention that the curtains are drawn. I think they'd stated that the curtains were open, weren't they? Because they did, they I had a question about why would she go to bed and not draw the curtains? That was it, yeah. Why would she get to bed and not draw the curtains? Precisely. So everything seemed to have been thought through. And then I think he was posing the questions to Dorothy Say as a crime writer and inviting her to his home, like, come tomorrow night for dinner. Obviously, she's a busy lady. She couldn't go tomorrow night. And I will show you, I will show you everything that happened. I will take you through it. Oh, yes, and the other thing was about that he tells Dorothy Sayer what Morris Tribe is thinking. He enters Morris's Tribe thinking process, and then he says about using the towel to conceal the fingerprints on the revolver. He wouldn't need to, would he? But he would have to do it if he shot Dr. Naomi Dancing, because his fingerprints would be on the gun. Good point. 
I want you to hear this conversation between Dorothy Sayers and Dr. John Dancy. Now, this is based on the notes that Dorothy Sayers took at the time about the call with Dr. John Dancy. She documented it because it unnerved her. And not only that, in fact, it unnerved her so much that she immediately sent the notes to New Scotland Yard. So who was Dorothy Sayers? Well, she was one of the greatest crime writers of her time, along with Agatha Christie. She was one of the queens of crime. By 1937, she had written 16 crime novels. And interestingly, her last novel, right at the time of Dr Naomi Dancy's brutal murder, was about a man who was found murdered in his house. All the rooms and doors were locked from the inside, with no evidence of a break-in. A classic locked room murder mystery. And what do we have with Dr Naomi Dancy's murder? A locked room murder mystery. And interestingly, Dr John Dancy just happened to pick Dorothy Sayers to invite to his house to see the crime scene. Take a listen to this from Ghost Story, and you'll hear the whole conversation as remembered by Dorothy Sayers. Pay close attention to what Dr John Dancy said to her. Also pay attention to the timing of this call. In December of 1937, less than a month after Naomi's murder, Dorothy Sayers is at home when she receives a call from a man she doesn't know. Right, so is this Miss Dorothy Sayers, the writer? Who is that speaking, please? Dr. Dancy of Richmond. Dr. Dancy of Richmond. That's Fayther, of course. And the conversation that followed... Sayers found it so strange and unsettling that she took detailed notes, essentially a transcript of the call, and immediately sent them to Scotland Yard. So we're going to read it, excerpts of it, like an old-fashioned radio drama. Hugh agreed to play Fader again. Right. Annie will be playing Dorothy Sayers. Turns out my British accent is terrible. And off we go. Is this Miss Dorothy Sayers, the writer? Who is that speaking, please? Dr. Dancy of Richmond. Oh, yes, doctor. What is it? Well, I know your books. You're interested in crime and so on. Yes. Well, my wife was murdered a few weeks ago, and I thought you might like to come and see the place. It's quite a problem. Good heavens. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm afraid detective writers are rather stupid about problems in real life. Oh, there's nothing to solve. That's all being cleared up. But I thought you would be interested in hearing all the details of the investigation. There's a great deal more than ever got in the news of the world. Did you read about the crime? No, I, I don't think I did. Oh, well, it was a very complicated business. My brother-in-law, he'd had a head wound during the war and was a little unbalanced, shot my wife and tried to shoot me, but I escaped by flopping down and pretending to be dead. I begin to remember the case now. I thought you might. I thought it would interest you and help you with your work. You are interested in this kind of thing, aren't you? Very much, but I'm only in town for a few days. Come to dinner tomorrow night and I'll show you everything and tell you all sorts of details you wouldn't get from the police. Just stop there. Detective Jackie Moulton will be reprising her role as interrupter, stopping us whenever she hears something she wants to comment on. Only less than three weeks after his wife died, he's calling Dorothy Sayer. Because the first thing that you can imagine, if your wife's been murdered three weeks, you think, oh, do you know what? I'm going to give that to a crime writer. So, back to the call with Sayers. 
Faith has just invited Sayers to come over for dinner and tour the crime scene. She tells him that she's busy, but she could come over after Christmas. All right, well then, if you'd like to come and have a talk about it after Christmas, I'll just give you a few more details to whet your appetite. You are interested. Thank you very much. I I appreciate it very much. That sort of detail is most useful, but this must have been very terrible for you. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm rather a philosopher in these things. A few details to whet your appetite. From here, Faither does go into a lot of detail. Detail you don't find anywhere else in the police file. He'd planned it all out a long time before. He tried very hard to persuade me to buy a razor of a suitable sort. He couldn't use that kind himself because he only had one eye. So he persuaded me to buy one for myself. Then he took a lavatory towel to hold the revolver. He thought that the absence of one towel in the lavatory wouldn't be noticed. He shot my wife. And then he shot at me. The shot was fired from about 14 feet. They can tell that, you know. Did you know they could tell that? Well, then his idea was to make it look as though I had cut his throat. It was very carefully planned a long time before. Stop. These are totally new facts. Read that bit again, can you? Well, then his idea was to make it look as though I had cut his throat. It was very carefully planned a long time before. So, this is new information. He's not told the police that, has he? Yeah, this is not something that was introduced in the original statement. Right. The whole idea of him as a suspect is coming up for the first time here. Yes. I want to spend another moment on this, because the logic here is kind of stunning. What Fader is suggesting is that Morris intended to kill himself, encouraged Fader to buy him the right kind of razor to do it, but was planning to do it in such a way that it would look like Fader had killed him. Because according to Fader's logic, Morris, after he was dead wanted to pin his death on Fader. It sounds like one of those complicated crimes that one only thinks happens in books. Oh, it was a regular storybook crime. He was a fellow who was always reading books, detective stories and that kind of thing. I'm afraid we tell people too much in our books. Yes, ha ha ha. I'm afraid so it was obviously a murder taken out of a book. Stop again. If I was to speak about the book, can I speak about the book? So the police do recover some interesting items in Tribe's room. They find some methylated spirits. They find cocaine. They find some photographs of nude women. And they find a book, fictional book, called Murder in the House. So it's almost like a bit of a... Cluedo game, isn't it? <laughs> These items are conveniently, you know, in the room. To clarify, it's in Morris's room that police find these seemingly incriminating items. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, and a book called Murder in the House. Faith says that Morris loves reading crime novels. But he's also reporting that Morris is losing his eyesight. Dancy talks about the evidence that Morris could hardly see. He'd lost one eye and the other eye was failing. So then he tells police he read these murdered books all the time. And then he's saying he could hardly read. You know, he can't see. So he's hardly an avid reader, was he? Back to the phone call. And then we got the police, and of course they had to go into a lot of questions in their usual way, you know, so keen on the wood that they couldn't see any of the trees. 
to show that I hadn't done it myself. They had to be sure I hadn't cut his throat myself and got out through the lavatory window and then broken the door afterwards. Then another point, there was blood on all four walls of the lavatory, but there was no blood on me, and there were no blood stains or marks on the window where I might have got out. Just stop there. Uh, is he saying to say actually what happened? What do you mean? Can you read it again? Yeah. They had to be sure I hadn't cut his throat myself and got out through the lavatory window and then broken the door afterwards. He's telling Sayer, this is, this is how I did it. That's how I read that. Jackie's suggesting that in this conversation with Dorothy Sayers, Fader may have been outlining the answer to the locked door mystery. Fader would essentially be saying, if I'd done it, well, I'd have had to have climbed out the window, come back into the house, and then knock the door down. I'd like to know, for example, where that lavatory window is and how, you know, is it on a flat roof? Can you access the ground? So what would you want to do? You would want to go and see that yes, window? everything. I would want to go and see everything, yeah. We have seen the window. Would you like to see a picture of it? Yes. Okay. The window opens out on the left side of the house. It's high, 25 feet or so. Too high, in my opinion, for someone to scale or jump down from. But Jackie immediately notices something. That's oh, so he could scale down the drain pipe. There's a drain pipe that runs underneath the window and then down the house to the ground. How easy would a drain pipe be like that to scale down there? No, that's, that's not difficult, would it be? That's what burglars used to do, didn't they? Go mm-hmm. up, and, up and down drain pipes, yeah. As far as why Fayther called Dorothy Sayers to tell her this, Jackie has another theory. So he's actually saying they're missing stuff, is he not? That's what I, that's what I got from it. How do you read that? Like, sort of gloating? Yes. Gloating. Gloating. I thanked him again, and I said I was sorry I couldn't come Thursday, but might possibly manage Friday. Friday? Oh, yes, come Friday. Only, of course, I shall have had to put back some of the things. For instance, I must put back the bolt on the lavatory door. But I can show you most of the things, and we can have a talk about it. If you come Friday, don't give your real name. Not my real name. No, my daughter's coming home, and she's read your books and would recognise your real name. She's 14, and she doesn't know anything about all this yet. Very well. If I come, I'll use my married name, Fleming. I'll let you know if I can manage it. Then he gave me the address and telephone number. It's not only what was said in this call by Dr John Dancy, it's also the timing of the call. This was just a few weeks after Dr Naomi Dancy was brutally murdered. Also, Dorothy Sayers sent the notes to New Scotland Yard, and staggeringly, the case had already been closed and written up as a murder-suicide. She received a letter responding to her communication, acknowledging the phone call was curious but she was told not to worry about it. And she was also told that the case would never be reopened. This is just a few weeks afterwards. Unbelievable. So many questions, Laura, so many questions. I just also find, if I can find it as well, or I forget, because there's so much in here, we could talk for a day on it, to be perfectly honest. So much information that we could analyse things. 
uh, this one about Miss Dorothy Sayers rang up and asked to speak to you. She said she knew you personally. She had a call by a firm from Dr. Dancy of Richmond, who was concerned in the recent shooting affair, suggesting she might like to call on him to get a first-hand account of the tragedy. Miss Sayers said the doctor is a perfect stranger to her and his offer seemed quite unnatural and inexplicable. And she wondered whether we could give her some hint as to the type of man the doctor is. After consultation with Mr. Horwell, which is the next rank up, I told Miss Sayers that she would be well advised to do nothing at present, at any rate, until she heard from you. She'd be grateful if you could phone her. And then this senior officer writes to her and he says, I think it quite likely that he had some idea at the back of his mind of providing you, Miss Sayers, with details to be used in some future book and then possibly reminding you that to share the proceeds would be welcome. I feel certain that the case will never be reopened. So he's saying, Miss Sayers, don't worry about it. Don't you worry your pretty little head about this. You've got anonymous letters. You've got people going in and saying about this other gentleman calling in and talking about the nude photographs. You've got Dorothy L. Sayers concerned, and the police box it and cox it that say, oh, no, 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 this is, no, we don't have to worry about all of these things. So the, the problem about the insurance, because what the chief officer of police had said, it would be, it is just worthwhile if we can do it to have a statement from the insurance company showing that this dead man did know that a new insurance had been affected in which he was not interested. That is to say, in which he would get no commission. Is it possible, you know, to get a statement? So they go and see a gentleman from the Legal and General Assurance Society. And he informed me that he dealt personally with the policy of insurance with the lives of Naomi Dancy and Dr. John Dancy, which was for £5,000, also one for 500 on the life of their eldest son, who was at Winchester College. So the insurance guy said, after consulting with his head office, declined to make a statement, but told me in confidence that Morris Tribe definitely knew that his sister and brother-in-law had gone over his head to take out a fresh policy in which he, Tribe, would have no interest. And you kind of think, how would he know that? He wouldn't know that. He wouldn't know that because the only, because Dr. Dancy talks about leaving the insurance letters on his desk and concern that Morris Tribe would have read them. That is on the evening of the murder. So, in my opinion, the police are boxing it, boxing it to fit the narrative that they've got, that Dr. Dancy told them what had happened and they said well that's absolutely I think that's absolutely right we're open a shut case murder suicide it's appalling an appalling investigation by the Metropolitan Police in 1937 and they should be ashamed of themselves I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode I'm curious at this stage What did you make of all that Jackie and I have discussed in part one and two? And yes, there will be a part three. There's a lot to think about with this case, minus the ghost and the psychic. Jackie makes an excellent point about why would Morris use a towel to hold the gun if he intended to kill Dr Naomi and then take his own life. That detail was not included in his police statement. Dr John Dancy proactively sought out and called Dorothy Sayers. He told her that he knew about her books and thought she'd want to come and see the crime scene. 
Now, that's not normally what's on a grieving husband's mind, just weeks after his wife's murder. He immediately stated that there was nothing to solve. It's all being cleared up, he said. But yet, he thought she'd be interested in hearing all the details of the investigation. Well, that's bizarre to me. I mean, it's bizarre in the sense that if Morris killed his sister, Dr Naomi, and then killed himself, well, then there's no great mystery or puzzle to solve. Also, there was no real investigation to speak of because it was cleared up immediately. So why would the case be of any interest to a mystery-loving, problem-solving, leading female crime writer? That really stands out to me and is at odds. In my opinion, he's leaking out what really happened with the very act of making this call and what he said. He said that Morris did it and he centres himself as the hero who outsmarted the so-called killer and within his narrative there was no mention of his dear and beloved wife, Dr Naomi, or how horrific the murder was, or traumatic, or the catastrophic impact that it's had on him or the children. That's noticeably absent, and for me that's yet another huge red flag. Rather, he invites Dorothy Sayers to dinner, and said he'd give her more of the details to wet her appetite, which again is such a bizarre thing to say, and the choice of words, well, it really leaks out his desperation for her attention, and it feels like he's very pleased with himself. That again really stands out to me given the circumstances. I mean, his wife was murdered, the mother of his children, and he seems to see it as some sort of game. He then tells her, a stranger and writer, details that are completely new about the case that were not in his police statement. In other words... He was changing his story and statement. That's a huge red flag. He said that Morris was trying to pin the crime on him, yet there was no evidence to suggest this, and there was no motive for Morris to do it. And let's not forget, the man was blind in one eye and partially sighted in the other, and he could barely walk because he'd had a stroke and badly hurt his knees. Also, why does Dr John Dancy even ruminate about if he did do it, that he would have climbed out the window. I mean, no one suggested that he did it at the time. This is a blinding glimpse of the obvious. It was an open and shut case. So why did he even bring that up? You know, for me, this is O.J. Simpson-esque, the if-I-did-it narrative that really feels like gloating. And you should listen to our detailed episodes and deconstruction of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman's murders on Real Crime Profile to get a true understanding of what really happened. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how lazy professionals can be. The principle of least effort rings true almost every time. The rush to believe a bloke's story because, well, he's a bloke. There was no real investigation by the Metropolitan Police. That's a fact. The case was closed within three weeks, which is almost unheard of for a murder, and particularly one like this, where there were some very unusual circumstances and there was no challenge or probing of Dr John Dancy's account, and Dr Naomi Dancy deserves so much better than that. You might feel that, OK, well, this was 1937, but I can tell you, we still see cases present day when a man's narrative and word out-trumps the facts and the evidence, and that's not OK. Join us next week when Jackie and I deconstruct the fader of it all. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. 
here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude.